In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a seat, please. It is a joy to be with you all here. Um, able to arrive late yesterday as your vestry was completing uh, a day of uh, great visioning and conversation and had some time to, to be with them and then with your clergy and their spouses last night and then to, not often I get to uh, do confirmation at an eight o'clock service in addition to this service. So uh, a real joy to be having a taste of your life here and of course to be uh, a part of the rededication of a hall in memory of some very, very influential and devoted followers of Jesus in this place. So it is great to be with you all. I'd like to um, borrow somewhat heavily from a sermon um, I heard some years ago by the Reverend Sue Summer. Uh, and I want to share with you how she begins this homily. <clears throat> One of the things I discovered when I went to Israel with some clergy colleagues years ago is that biblical geography is a tricky proposition. Wherever we went, our most energetic guide would tell us that a particular site was the very place in which some scriptural event happened. After the guide moved ahead to talk to the driver about where we were going next as somewhat to counter this blind biblical literalism or perhaps out of a mischievous spirit which he usually kept well under wraps my then bishop bishop frank griswold would quietly proceed to share the latest in scriptural scholarship and archaeological evidence that perhaps at least called into question some of the claims that the guide made one such place to get demythologized was Emmaus. Bishop Griswold pointed out that no map of historical Israel shows a town called Emmaus anywhere within a seven to 10 mile radius of Jerusalem. That's the distance given the terrain and given the climate that one might reasonably be able to walk in a day. There is simply no credible archeological evidence that any town called Emmaus ever existed. And yet I can tell you that I have journeyed to Emmaus. And I dare say, perhaps many of you have journeyed there as well. The late Frederick Beekner, in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, claims that Emmaus can well be understood as a state of mind. Emmaus, he writes, is where we go when life gets to be too much for us. The place we go to escape. Emmaus is a safe place where we can throw up our hands and say, to heck with it. 
Emmaus is where we go when we realize that humankind's noblest ideas have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish people for selfish ends, unquote. St. Luke writes that Cleopas and his traveling companion were certainly on their way to that kind of Emmaus. Luke implies that these two people were followers of Jesus, not part of the inner 12, but part of the larger body of faithful who followed Jesus and who had heard his teachings and fully expected him to be the anointed, the Messiah. And that included Jesus to be a prophet, mighty in deed and word, the one that they would hope would redeem Israel from foreign domination. But instead, in the days before this journey, he was betrayed, condemned to death, and crucified. That wasn't what happened to the lawgiver and deliverer Moses. That wasn't what happened to the great prophet Elijah. And it sure as heck wasn't what happened to the great King David. God had clearly been on their side, and by God's mighty hand, the people of Israel prevailed and were freed. As for Jesus of Nazareth, as the saying goes, close but no cigar. And they're thinking to themselves, they should have known it was too good to be true. He didn't raise up an army. He didn't seek great political power to overthrow what was. In the vastness of their history, the history of Israel, there was precious little evidence that they would ever be anything but a vassal state of some other powerful nation. And then you put on top of that, now remember, this is Easter day still, according to Luke. They tell the story that they are journeying and that women have reported that the body is missing and that angels say that he is risen and they can't even go there. So yes, Cleopas and companion were definitely on their way to Emmaus. But then look what happened. Jesus appeared to them. And more, he spoke to their hearts, reinterpreting the events surrounding his death from a much needed and more correct, different theological vantage point. But this was much more than this type of divine spin doctoring that takes place. This was the stuff of transformation. And it's an important story to hear now, a couple of weeks after Easter Day, still in this Easter season. The lilies are faded now. And boy, that's some metaphor to think about from time to time. But Russia's brutal war on Ukraine is no closer to resolution. Election rhetoric is doing its bit to inspire cynicism. 
you all here in Bowling Green, continue faithfully rebuilding following deadly tornadoes and healing so many scars. And then to your south and north, recent horrific mass shootings in Nashville and two in Louisville continue to sadden, anger, and frustrate us. One of those shootings occurring at 9 a.m. on the Monday after Easter Day with hallelujahs still hanging in the air. And then there's life for each of us. We may be facing challenging family dynamics. The new job we hoped for went to somebody else. A loved one lives and suffers with a chronic illness and the treatments just aren't presenting themselves to alleviate that. A sibling just can't seem to get out of addiction. And grief at times is overwhelming. And it is in the midst of all of that, any of that, that we can relate to, we hear what Jesus says in this gospel. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into glory? It's a rhetorical question, but it rings powerfully to this very moment. Fearful, threatened, powerful leaders conspired to put Jesus to death. And God was able to take that wayward, faithless act and redeem it not only for his beloved son, but for all of humanity. And if that was true for these figures, Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Peter, then it is true for us as well. God is able to use us, not just in those fleeting moments when we are in sync with God, but in all those times that we are not. And so we can be assured that there is no place of mores or darkness, no despair, no death-filled tomb that God cannot redeem and from which bring forth life. It's what I hope every candidate this morning to receive the laying on of hands remembers above all else this central Easter truth. And I hope that all of us, because we will renew our baptismal covenant, will remember that as well. There is nothing God cannot redeem. Especially when our hearts are breaking and hope is so elusive, the risen Jesus doesn't just stand back for a while and let us wallow in our, the heck with it and find our way out. Instead, in every Emmaus journey, we find the risen Lord has been walking with us all the time and confers new life. And that's the miracle of the resurrection in our lives as individuals, as communities of faith, as a diocese, as all followers of Jesus. And for us, it's a miracle that we celebrate every Sunday at this holy table in the breaking of bread, where Jesus became known to his disciples in Emmaus.
we may well have evidence of the empty tomb of Christ, but given these other realities and how we must deal with them constantly, we live with despair and cynicism that can often mute or displace faith and hope. And to be honest and to be healthy, there are times we have to say the heck with it. Because it is in those moments that the powerful transformative Easter truth is most precisely known. When our hearts are breaking, that is when, in that opening, Christ most likely speaks to us. Now we may not, and we've had these moments, we may not know it at the time, but we can be assured that he remains faithful even when it's difficult for any of us. And it's also a part of this community into which the candidates are confirmed and received and reaffirmed their baptismal covenant today. Because there are times I have trouble believing and you believe on my behalf. And there are times that any of us does it for each other. And that's a part of this community because this story says after they realized Jesus in the breaking of the bread, they ran back, the two of them. Now it's seven miles, 10 miles, I don't know how far that journey is, but they ran back to rejoin community. Even when we don't get it, and here's an important part, the risen Christ didn't wait for them to have this realization of faith. He bestowed new life on them in the midst of that Emmaus journey. And that's the way this works. The risen Christ always makes sure we have something that we look at, that we feel, whether our heart burns, whether there is something that begins to click, maybe in the moment, but usually at time after, and we say, that's where new life began to shine for me. God, for every Emmaus, is still able to wrest victory from defeat. My last short point here. It is so interesting that Cleopas and his friend finally recognized Christ in their midst when he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, as he did in his passion with his own body for the life of the world. This was more than a memory of the Last Supper. This was and is, in this Eucharist, the outward and visible sign of the truth of God's holy scriptures, that new life is brought forth from death, that God brings something out of nothing. That in his body broken and his blood poured, God in Christ brings transformation to his beloved children. Especially when we are in Emmaus. And all we have to do in those moments to participate in resurrection life 
is to reach out our hands. Amen.